Christian motherhood is a call to submission. When a child becomes, when a child of God becomes a mother, she enters a life work that necessitates courageous submission to the purposes of God. She must submit her body to the traumatic ordeal of pregnancy and childbirth. She must submit significant sums of time and vast stores of energy to the rigors of nurturing an infant. She must submit herself to God as she establishes biblical priorities and pours out her very life for the good of her growing children. And in all of this, she must submit to God's will concerning her offspring. Ultimately, her labors as a mother are rendered as submissive service to God, for they belong, her children, to Him, and He writes their future. Whether her children live or die (coughs) is God's decision. Whether they leave home or move down the street or out of state or to another continent is ultimately God's decision. While she is God's instrument to steer her children to the fear of God and to succeed in life, ultimately what they do and what they become falls under His sovereign design. Christian motherhood is then, from start to finish, a call to submit to God's will, who in all things works for the glory of His name and the ultimate good of His people. These thoughts form a bridge from our day Mother's Day 2003, to the text of Scripture in Luke and Palestine around 5 B.C. As we ride the wings of Luke's skillful recounting of events, the story begins where it will end, at the political, cultural, and religious center of Israel, the bustling city of Jerusalem in Judea. Here at Herod's magnificent temple at the very center of activity in the land of promise, the angel Gabriel breaks 400 years of revelatory silence. Gabriel is dispatched to earth to reveal to Zechariah, a priest of the Abijah division, that he will soon become the father of a son and he will be named John. In God's sovereign plan, this son will grow to adulthood and will serve a very special role in God's redemptive purposes. He will enjoy a spirit-filled ministry, preaching a message of righteousness that will prepare many Israelites for the coming Messiah. Remember, Zechariah has some problems with all of this. He doubts, and he is struck dumb and deaf as a sign of the authenticity of the angelic message. This aged Zechariah then journeys home (coughs) to his Judean hill country, and as God promised, a son is conceived in the womb of Zechariah's barren wife. Now at verse 26, the scene shifts from the bustling temple in Jerusalem far to the north to the region of Galilee. And here once again, Gabriel delivers a birth announcement, a divine promise of the coming birth of a son. I will not take the time to develop that this morning, but there is a very decisive parallel between John and Jesus that rotates throughout this section of Scripture. 
with John's announcement and the, the uh, events that surround the announcement of his birth. We have a very parallel direction here now with Jesus, and there is clearly a parallel between the two. John, the forerunner, the proclaimer of the Messiah, and now Messiah's birth. And so we will see many of the same things taking place in the announcement of Christ's birth that we saw in the announcement of John the Baptist's birth last week. First of all, here we see, again, a parallel, Gabriel greeting Mary, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, this is a remarkably skillful uh, way into the account of the telling of Jesus' birth, this phrase, in the sixth month. That ties it directly to what has gone before. In the sixth month of what? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And one month after she returned from hiding, verse 24, the angel Gabriel comes to the town of Nazareth. Now when we go to Nazareth, we need to journey in our mind's eye from that center of Jerusalem and the magnificent temple where there was this revelation to Zechariah and journey in our mind's eye far to the north in the mountainous region right on the a pass leading into the Jezreel Valley in this town of Nazareth on the side of a mountain uh, of sorts, and on a major thoroughfare through the ancient world. Remember, all the travel needs to pass down through Palestine to avoid the sea on the west and to avoid the desert on the east, and so connecting Mesopotamia, uh, uh, Assyria, and all of that region to the north and to the east down through to Egypt, everyone needs to pass through Palestine. And as they go through Palestine with all of the mountains and the rugged terrain, they have to walk down certain paths to get there easily. And Nazareth is right off of one of those major thoroughfares that take in a pass leading into the Jezreel Valley and then will work its way down along the sea. So it's something of a busy place, but a small town, an insignificant town, a town that was despised by the religious establishment in Jerusalem. But Gabriel is dispatched not only to the temple, but now dispatched here to this faraway town of Nazareth. Galileans, as I mentioned, were despised by the religious establishment, (coughs) in part because Galilee was mostly populated by Gentiles. It was far from Jerusalem and the center of religious activity there. But Nazareth saw many people passing through. And so it was an important city in its own right, though ignored by the religious establishment. There were many caravans that would have passed through. And there was, it was also a priestly city, which meant that, remember last week, Zechariah would have served as priest in one of the 24 divisions uh, one, two times, one week period, two times a year. Well, when that period came for the priests that were up in Galilee in this area of Nazareth. They would gather at Nazareth to journey together down to Jerusalem for their week of service at the temple. And so Nazareth was a place where people were always coming and going. Now there in this town, this despised town by the religious, but this very busy town, there is a woman, verse 27, in fact, a virgin to whom Gabriel appears. She is a virgin, we read in verse 27, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. (coughs) She is pledged to be married 
word should be probably translated betrothed. It is something very different from our pledge or engagement, as some translations very falsely would, would identify it. This means, as we know and have heard before, that Joseph and Mary's families had entered into legal binding covenant with one another to join Joseph and Mary somewhere within a year. They were considered married according to the customs of the day. It would take a divorce or death to end betrothal. However, a betrothed couple was given this usually somewhere around a year in time to develop romantic interest in one another. The Jews had it way over us in our culture on this matter. You developed romantic interest in one person, and that was it. And so when the betrothal came then, you turned on the romantic juices and began to fall in love with this person to whom you were, in fact, actually married. They were spared many heartaches along the way, and it wasn't such a bad system. But at any rate, that is where Mary is. She is not living with Joseph. She is not physically involved with him yet at this point in her life. But she is, at this place, married to him. According to the customs of the day, Mary would probably have been between 12 and 14 years of age, more likely to the younger side of that. The Jews saw children in a way very different than our culture sees them. And we we love children in our culture. They have a high place. But they are also, let's admit it, culturally, I don't think that's true in our church, I certainly hope not, but culturally children are seen to some degree as a nuisance. They get caught around the neck and they cause troubles and they bind us down and and cause all kinds of difficulties. There was no concept of that in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, children were, in fact, through and through, in every sense of the way, a blessing. And therefore, if they were a blessing, you had as many blessings as you could get a hold of. And one way to have as many children as possible was for the women to marry very young in their, in their life, in their experience. As soon as they were capable of bearing children, they would be given in marriage. And so there was a very different training situation as well. Children were trained to be mature and to mature very quickly. When a child came to 12 years of age, they were essentially equipped to function as adults in adult life, in adult society. That's their world. Not saying that that's necessarily all God's will, but that was the world in which they lived. I think there is some value to some of it and to consider it, but that's just their world. Mary is betrothed then as a maybe 12 or 13 year old woman to Joseph, who, in again the culture we might assume would have been somewhere in his mid teens, a little bit older. But the key here in verse 27 is that he is a descendant of David, the Davidic line through whom God has promised a king would come and rule over Israel. Now the angel, verse 28, went to her, to Mary, and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. This is a simple but profound greeting and nothing more. Sadly, let me just throw in here very quickly, a post-Nicene father, Jerome, translated the phrase highly favored with the Latin gratia plena, which means more, it would be more the idea of full of grace, which led later church leaders to the dogmatic conclusion that Mary was naturally endowed with grace that she could give out to other people. And from there, the thought just continued to unravel. And in 1854, it was declared by Pope Pius IX that Mary was born without a sin nature. 
the point of all of this, just through a mistranslation, many, many moons ago, there has developed all types of thinking about Mary that is very twisted and is very wrong. The point here is simply in verse 28, when he says, you are highly favored, he just means that. It is a greeting. She has been graciously chosen for this special purpose to which Gabriel will bring her attention momentarily. But first, we note, after this greeting, after this coming to Mary, Mary responds with alarm. We're going to see through the text, there are three responses that Mary gives. Her first is one of alarm. We've noticed verse 29, she's greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Greatly troubled, the Greek word could be translated confused or perplexed. Apparently, we're also to understand some degree of fear, for verse 30 indicates that she was not to be afraid. But the emphasis here is on the fact that Mary is troubled by the greeting itself. What could this possibly mean? Highly favored, chosen by God, in a place of unique divine benefit. What is this? She's perplexed, she's confused, there's fear that's in her heart, this young woman, as she deals with this traumatic situation. You're visited by an angel. There are indications that perhaps she has not heard that John, or that Zechariah, John's father, has been visited at the temple by an angel. We're not sure about that, but there are indications that she may not have heard of this. This is not normal. It has been four centuries since there has been any revelatory word uh, that we know of recorded in Scripture and any uh, visitation of this sort. And so this is very unusual. It reminds us almost of Samuel at the tabernacle, not sure of what he's hearing. Now here she is filtering this as a young woman, filtering this very strange visitation. And she's troubled by what does it mean that I'm highly favored. Verse 30, the angel begins to explain. (coughs) Do not be afraid, Mary, he says. You have found favor with God. The emphasis here is probably not on Mary's active righteousness, which was very real, but the emphasis, I think, is probably on the fact that she has found favor with God. That is, she is part of His sovereign purposes. God has chosen to shower her with favor and grace. But what specifically does Gabriel mean when he says that she is highly favored, that she has found favor with God? Verse 31, here's what he means. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. I don't know how it would be possible for Mary to hear that without a sense of awe and probably every pore of her body tingling with amazement. Mary knew the Old Testament scriptures, and when she heard this, there is only one thing that this angel could mean. She, a virgin, was going to bear a son. And verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. She seems to understand by her further questions below, we'll get to in a moment, that she will in some way, some undefined manner, be with 
child before she is with her husband. She will give birth to a son thus conceived and give his name, Jesus the Savior. Just as Gabriel told Zechariah what his son would become, he tells Mary what her son will become there in verse 32. The Son of the Most High God. When we hear the word Son, we get the concept in our head that is very different than how that word would have been heard in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, a son was never born into a family. That was a baby. That was a boy. That was a child, but not a son. In Jewish culture, a boy becomes a son when his daddy becomes his father. In other words, at age 12... Typically, a Jewish boy celebrates bar mitzvah, becoming the son of a commandment. In this ritual, the boy becomes one with his father in legal status. So he is the son of the Most High. He is one with his father, God. It brings to mind Daniel's common designation for God, the Most High. Now we note here the mention of Christ's divine sonship before the reference to His Davidic heritage. You notice that in verse 32. He will be called the Son of the Most High. That's the first thing that is said. The next thing that is said is that He will inherit the throne of His father, David. When you hear Son of the Most High, that means God. He is one with God. There is a distinction between father and son, but they are one in essence. There is a oneness there between the two. He will be the son of the Most High and will inherit the throne of his father David. He does not become the son of God because he becomes the Messiah. He is the son of God and therefore becomes the Messiah. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. I would suggest that Mary could hear that promise in only one way. Gabriel is promising here that Jesus will rule as a physical son of David over national Israel forever. This does not mean Gentiles will not be included in that, but it certainly does not mean that the Jews will not be a national identity. He would have been tricking Mary if he meant anything else. He will reign over his people, Israel, on the throne of his father David. His kingdom will never end. Jesus will turn over the millennial kingdom to the Father after 1,000 years, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26. But this does not mean Jesus will sit on His hands for eternity. He will continue to reign as He reigns today in heaven. And He will reign in some sense over the kingdom of His Father, David. How does Mary hear this? She is clearly a godly woman, schooled in Scripture, There is, as I mentioned at the start of this, there is no way that she can hear this without tingling. I'd like like us just to look visually at the prophecies of Isaiah and to notice the parallel. Mary is no dummy. Let's remember this problem we always have of thinking of people who live in ancient times were semi-Neanderthals that didn't know as much as we do. They didn't know as much as we do, but they were equally as smart, if not smarter, than we are. Our gene pool is dying out, if you know what I mean. So they were very sharp people. She knew what the angel was saying. You, she knows she's a virgin, confirms that in verse 34, will be with child. Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will be with child. You will give birth to a son, Gabriel says. Isaiah prophesied the virgin will give birth to a son. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Isaiah, and we'll call him Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Isaiah, he will reign on David's throne. Gabriel, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Isaiah, he will reign on David's throne forever. There is no way that Mary could miss what the angel is saying. You are going to bear the Messiah. She knows what Isaiah 7.14 says. She knows that a virgin will conceive a son, according to Isaiah's long-standing prophecy. We're not sure entirely all of what she understood there and the prophetic nature of that call, but it certainly was seen that way, understood that way. And so putting it all together, she is understanding the Old Testament Scriptures that there is a seed of the woman that will be born through Adam, through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David. And a virgin will conceive. And this son, your son, will reign over Israel. Now, if there's any doubts, if you say, I'm not buying this, that she knew Isaiah 7.14 that way, I would disagree with you, but that's fine. If you're not buying that, Who's reigning over Jerusalem? And who's reigning over Palestine right now? It's no descendant of David. There's no throne in Jerusalem right now where any Jew is reigning. This is a dramatic prophecy. Her son will reign in Jerusalem. She knows what this means. This is nothing less than a prophecy of the Messiah. Now, I don't know how much Mary may have thought about this over her few years on earth. Maybe it had come to her thinking as she thought through Isaiah 7.14. We don't know, but we see her second response here is one of confusion. Verse 34, for she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? I don't want to take time to go too far in this, but this just shows some grit, doesn't it? And here's this young woman. She's not fallen down in her face, shaking with fear and weeping. She stands there and talks to an angel and says, you've got to talk to me through this. I don't understand this. I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? Unlike Zechariah, Mary is not seeking proof here. She is seeking light She's not questioning questioning Gabriel as Zechariah apparently did. She is simply wondering, what am I to do? Gabriel instructs Mary at verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. He will be the Son of God. He will be equal with God. How will this happen? The Most High will overshadow you. Does that bring anything to your mind as you think Old Testament? The Most High will overshadow you. This phrase of overshadowing is clearly used of God in the glory cloud that overshadowed Israel. He overshadowed the temple. He came into the temple and filled that glorious 
uh, inner sanctum of the tabernacle, I should say, and then later of Solomon's temple. But there was that hovering cloud, that overshadowing cloud, that presence of God that led the Israelites out of Egypt and led them through (coughs) the wilderness. In fact, this very same word is used in three gospel accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus. Let's just look at Luke's use of it in Luke chapter 9 and verse 34. Luke chapter 9 and verse 34. This place where the glory of Christ is demonstrated to uh, those who were up with Him on the mountain. Luke chapter 9 and verse 34. While he was speaking, that is while Peter is interrupting, we could say, while he is speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. There's that same Greek word. It overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice from the cloud came saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. There's that overshadowing presence of of God Himself. Using that same terminology, Gabriel explains to Mary, Mary, here's what's going to happen. God Himself, the Most High God, will come and overshadow you in some unique way, and what will be conceived in your womb will be from Him. There will be no human father involved in this, but there will be a simple overshadowing in a miraculous way you will conceive in your womb as, a, as God acts in this way. The angel goes on and gives a sign to Elizabeth, even, or rather to Mary, verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. Now there is no way that Elizabeth was going to have a child. But God has said... John the Baptist is the forerunner. Here is this unique sign. His mother is going to bear him, though she is barren and aged. That's the sign for you, Mary, that God is going to overshadow you and you are going to have a child in your womb. Conceived in a unique way, apart from a human father. Apparently, Mary didn't know about Elizabeth. We're not sure why, but... Uh, it, would, it would seem to some degree that she's being informed here in verse 36, apparently. Elizabeth lived in the hill country of Judea. Let's remember, that's a long, long ways from Nazareth. There's no telephone. They didn't post a birth announcement or a coming birth announcement or anything like that. And it's apparently, she is just not aware of Elizabeth's situation, but she will be soon. And she is here, of course, in, in, in uh, the sense of the knowledge, she will uh, visibly visit with Elizabeth soon. But Gabriel issues this closing word of assurance then in verse 37. These are beautiful words, aren't they? Verse 37, For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing external to God Himself and His own character can limit Him from doing whatever He wills to do. Nothing. God has said it says Gabriel, and he will do it. The Christian faith is not a blind faith in the impossible. It is an active faith in the God who can do the impossible. This will happen. 
What a strange story. And many have tried to put us at ease and say, listen, it's really not all that strange, it's just a myth. There's all kinds of myths floating around at this time of Greek gods cohabiting with women and having semi-divine children from them. And that's all this is, it's just playing out the same thing. Well, that doesn't ever surprise me when Satan imitates and tries to steer people clear of the uniqueness of God's design and God's purposes. He is a schemer. He is a, uh, one who fools and tricks people as an angel of light. But on the other hand, there is dramatic differences between what we read here and what we read in the Greek accounts, the pagan mythical accounts of a god cohabiting with a woman. This is no cohabitation as they would describe it. And let's remember that those gods are no gods at all. This is some type of overshadowing that is miraculous, but is an act of God to do the impossible. Our faith rests in miracle. If we're not comfortable with that, we're not comfortable with God's plan of salvation. That's the way it is. It rests in miracle. I don't believe that God is doing miracles every day all over the place. We should turn rocks and look behind every tree, and every little thing that happens in life is some type of miracle. But God does work miraculously. And there is no salvation apart from this miraculous work of one conceived fully human, yet fully divine. There is no other concept like this anywhere. We must hold to this miracle. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, why say that, Gabriel, if there's just some logical explanation? Mary slept with Joseph before she was supposed to. And Jesus turned out to be a very unique man, and God, therefore, at a certain place in Jesus' ministry, said, He is now my son, my unique son. Not impossible, is it? Very logical and explainable. If Mary had slept with a Roman soldier working his way down through Nazareth, as so many have said, what is impossible about that? Gabriel's message is, Mary, you have to understand what I am saying to you is impossible, humanly speaking, but there is nothing impossible to God. You are supposed to realize this is inexplicable. We have Mary's final response. Her first response is trouble. Her second is utter confusion. We see as the text unfolds, her third response is one of submission to the plan of God. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is a profound response, and I'd like us to focus carefully upon it for a few moments. In this response, we see the fiber of Mary's soul tested and found to be true. What dangers lie ahead for Mary What ridicule might she face? What heartaches and trials? Only time would tell. Come what may, however, she yielded herself to serve the purposes of God. 
What more? What more could be asked of a mother than that? What more could be asked of a young teenager than that? I am your servant. I will do what you want me to do. We reject the worshipful adoration afforded Mary by the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox Church and even by some vestiges of the Anglican Church. Yet I think we should have the highest respect for this woman. God did. Mary was chosen by God to bear the incarnate word and thus to serve God's purposes in a unique manner. And let's think of her and build from that, applying to us here today. I think there's a word for our teens in Mary's story. The expectation of our culture, in contrast to the Jewish culture, is one of extremely low expectations for our young people. This is time, teens, to have fun. This is time to live it up. This is time to enjoy all the fun experiences of life. You've got the rest of your life to grow up. This is your teen years. There, I understand, is an element of truth in that. Uh, We all cringe at the idea of seven-year-olds taking carts down a coal shaft and working 14-hour days. But there are some very negative residual effects, I think, to our cultural understanding. And that is this idea that as teenagers, it's time to have fun. Many times translates into, and it's not time to get serious with God. This is time to live as a teenager. This in-between era where you're really not responsible. You just live life freely and loosely and very ineffectively. I think there is a challenge here. I can't tell you how old Mary was, but understanding the culture and the situation, I think it would be fair for us to say, here is a woman, a young woman in her early teens, who is ready to bear the Messiah. We have no silly girl trying not to grow up. We have here a woman who is capable of bearing God. And raising him. I think there's a challenge there to those of us here who are in your teens... There are things that are fun. There are times to be enjoyed. There are certain responsibilities that you do not have to assume in our culture. But don't translate that into your walk with God. You can be as godly as any adult in this assembly. You can hear his voice. You can serve him and you can love him with all of your heart. And that's all he asks.
and that is your great joy. Go after God hard. Don't wait until you're older. I think there's certainly a message here for moms and dads in connection. Do you see motherhood as a life of submission to the purposes of God? Do you have the humble spirit of Mary that turns your children and their futures over to the Lord? This was not going to be an easy ride for Mary. Little could she have known what it would mean when she said, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. There would be a lifetime of ridicule and accusation that she would face. Mary was apparently the only one who witnessed Gabriel's prophecy. She was the only one who felt the overshadowing presence of God. And is it any wonder to us there were some people who didn't believe her? A virgin conceives a child. Well, I've heard a few myths before, but I've never heard that one. John 8 and verse 41 shows that Jesus into his adult life was always considered to be illegitimate. Mary's son would serve God in a way that she would simply not be able to understand with all the proper veneration that we would grant to Mary as a godly and good woman. Remember, there was that time when she went to take Jesus home. He's lost his marbles. We've got to recover him. We've got to take him out of here. We don't know what he's doing. Luke chapter 12, verses 46 and following. There were going to be some hard days ahead for Mary. It's not easy when your son's the Messiah and the Savior of the universe. But all of her heartaches would pale in comparison with what this woman would suffer on that tragic spring afternoon when she stood at the foot of a Roman cross and looked into the eyes of the Son who had never sinned and watched Him tortured and killed. I am the Lord's servant. It would mean that her heart would be pierced with unfathomable pain. But what else could she do? What else can we do? What else would be wise and sane for us as parents to do but this very thing? Can we grasp our children for ourselves? Can we spare them from every pain? Can we hoard and shelter them against all evil? We must come at the end to say, I am your servant, God. We must submit ourselves to to Him and to leave our children in His hands. By God's grace, let us do nothing less. But as we expand from there and move to broader thoughts... There's the bigger point here, and that is the very issue of submission to God. This is a matter that we will see here in Mary's life and later in her life. We see the submission of Joseph, who submits to the plan of God to marry this woman. We see the submission of John the Baptist, who never can touch the fruit of the vine, and who lives this austere and strange life. 
We see the submission of Jesus Christ Himself who goes to the cross to bear the sins of the world and says in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. This is a book, this is a story of submission to God. And it calls upon us to question again and anew, who are you living for? If you think submitting to God is safe, you are delusional. If you think submitting to God is a way to ease and success and safety, you are all wrong. If you think that submitting to God is a tragic loss, a duty of inconvenience, you are very, very wrong. Submitting to God is a call to death. It is a call to pick up the cross like Jesus did and to journey to death if that be the will of God. But that path of submission to God is life's only path to soul satisfaction and joy. There is no other route. It's a painful world. But think about what we have as we consider these truths. We come as God's people to participate with Jesus in submitting to God for his glory and for our joy. What a wonderful world we inhabit to which God has called us. It is filled with pain. It is filled with difficulty. It is not easy to submit our will. But this is the life that God has given to us, and it is a good life. And it will explode into eternal glory when we meet the Lord. We must be awed as we close out this account to think of God's saving plan. He moves in this unique way to provide a perfect substitute for sin. One fully divine, one fully human to bear our sin as a sinless sacrifice. What grace is this? It is of this grace that we sing. And if you do not have the sense that your sins have been washed clean by the sacrifice of this one Jesus Christ, that knowledge is available to you through faith in Him and what He has done. And we would love to show you from God's Word how you can know for sure that you have been forgiven, that you have been saved by this one Jesus, this Joshua, this Savior of the world. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we rejoice with great thanks of heart for what you have taught us in your word and how you have challenged us through Mary's example. What tremendous challenge there is here for our teens, for our mothers, for each of us who 
walk in the light of your purposes and will. God, teach us to be submissive. Submissive to your plan, whatever it might be. How often we rail against it. How often we resist it. How often, Lord, our spirit grows cold toward you when we face the trials and the difficulties of life. God, I pray that we would love something much more than life. That we'd love something much more than the ease of circumstances that so idolatrously calls for our attention. I pray, Lord God, that we'd love you more. And that our church, the people that are assembled here, might come increasingly to understand that you are a far greater joy and treasure than all of the ease and success and wealth that this world could offer. God, I pray that that would be something that just beats in our heart with truth. Help us, I pray, to, in this moment, commit ourselves to you in submission, knowing that we must walk by faith every day of our lives, every moment of our lives. And for any that know you not as Savior that are among us, I pray that you'll point them to the joy of Christ crucified and risen. God, my words are never going to open their heart, but I pray that your words would open their mind's eye to these truths, that they would realize who Jesus is and that they would be born again. This is our prayer together. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.